Hey, gang. I think it's December 16th, 2015. This is the Promotional More Practice live chat uh, on MMA Fighting. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you for joining me. Uh, happy to be here today, getting things started right on time, which is highly unusual. But um, I don't know. Good reason to do it, I suppose. All right, so a lot to get to today. UFC 194. I mean, every angle imaginable, we can touch on that. UFC on Fox 17 is this weekend. We'll have some coverage as well. There's a World Series of Fighting event. Uh, I, don't, I don't suspect that's at the top of your list of things to talk about, but if it is, we can get to it. Best place to do that, of course, is going to be on MMAfighting.com. You can get at me on Twitter at SBNLukeThomas, email Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. Many of you emailed me after I encouraged you to do so on the Monday Morning Analyst because I was only able to get to a handful of fights. Um, I tried to include the questions that um, were the best ones. A lot of you guys had the same questions, so I just took what was the best representative of that same question, and I cut and pasted it into the comments. Many of them have already turned green. So if you contributed something and didn't hear back necessarily, it's likely because it overlapped the what someone else had asked before you. So, uh, or, you know, someone had asked it in a, in a way that I thought was a little, a little clear. No matter what, thank you so much for contributing. So, uh, no diet soda today, believe it or not. I actually didn't have any in the house, so I've got water mixed with um, Clyte. Clyte is like a, uh, what do you want to call it? Colombian, um, what are those like teas you can get where you open like a thing of powder and you pour it into water and it turns into something? It's like that. And that is mora. So I guess blackberry. Um, it's delicious. All right. Let's go to the comments. Remember, the comments that turn green on MMA fighting get priority but not exclusivity. Uh, all right. First question is uh, hashtag free Barbus. Barbus is right here. Sleeping right next to me. I'll, maybe I'll pick him up if he wakes up. So actually, the first question then, uh, the cerebral striking game of Conor McGregor. Luke, even though you explained how difficult it was for you to make a pick for Aldo McGregor fight, ultimately cited with Aldo in your predictions article. I don't know why predictions are in quotation marks, but okay. The day before UFC 194, last week, you had initially picked McGregor to win, knowing that Aldo might not completely respect the tremendous punching power in his hands. That is all true. Uh, where's the question here? Since McGregor has shown the special ability of setting up the proper conditions to effectively knock out world-class opponents with both offensive pressure and defensive counters alike, would you consider him to be the most elite stand-up artist in the sport today? I don't think we have enough of a body of work to make that kind of claim, um, but I don't think he's far from it. And I certainly think that he is an important part of the discussion. Um, I, 194 was many, many things, and it taught us a lot. It said a lot. It uh, doesn't resolve everything, of course, but it really told us a lot. And one of the things it told us was there's a lot of discussion, for example, around movement. And Dominic Cruz is a big believer, not in the same way or brought to life in the same way that McGregor does it. Everyone has their own interpretation um, and then, you know, the physical instanti uh, instantiation of it. Um, but one of the things that they talk about is, of course, the movement. But really, it's more than just movement. It's more than just the idea of I'm able to physically put my body in a number of scenarios with ease. I'm able to create an, an amount of counters and, and, as you point out, pressure game because I have more offensive physical tools available to me. Um, it's, I think, more about disguising offense and making defense reactionary. One of the things I thought was kind of amazing was if you go back and you look at what, what made Aldo special during that WEC run and, of course, the early UFC run, but you know, he was really putting guys away. 
what was so impressive about him. You could look at the Cub Swanson fight. You could look at the Chris Mickle fight. You could look at a lot of fights. It was his reflexive decision-making. He was able in a quick spot to make a mental choice about what he wanted to throw and then explode into it. So it was both the ability to decide and then physically act on that decision in such quick, immediate succession with such a devastating effect that there was really no opportunity um, for someone to come back, right? So that's not the same as like necessarily the the open spacing, um, uh, the more open ability that McGregor has. He doesn't have it. He, let, me, let me finish the point. The point being of, of Aldo was that was what made him special. I thought he kind of was the victim of that on Saturday night a little bit. Like you saw just a quick reflexive decision-making that McGregor was able to, um, to exact, but McGregor is different, right? Because McGregor is, he is able to, um, there's just so much more afforded to him uh, uh, on both sides of the equation. As you know, I'm trying to give a good explanation for it. And I'm stumbling here a little bit, but suffice to say, you know, if you're talking about the, the, the best strikers in MMA. Um, he is in the conversation, no doubt about it. And, oh, and we're talking about the movement stuff as well. I apologize for for um, botching this, but it's it's a difficult question because I'm still trying to parse it out in my head. And if it sounds like that in real time, it's not accidental. But I guess um, the movement stuff, you definitely have to take more seriously now, not just because McGregor's doing it, but because other guys have been doing it as well. Dominic Cruz, again, in his own way. Carlos Condit, in his own way. Carlos Condit has been, has been you know, talking about the pronounced effects he's enjoyed from it dating back to March. Um, you can actually find that. So that's been going back for quite, if not before that. Um, but I guess for Connor and this movement stuff that I think is really worth talking about, disguising your offense, making your de- defense, this is also what I'm talking about earlier, quick, reactionary, able to go from off- or defense to offense in immediate succession and immediate angles um, with just the amount of ease. And I, again, I don't think McGregor is the explosive kind of athlete that Aldo is. At least he hasn't shown himself to be quite yet. Um, but up here, he can make a calculated decision. He can bring it to life. Um, through repetition and ease, uh, having a wider array of physical possibilities afforded to him through some of his own thinking through martial arts, his own training, his own sparring, and some of the movement, right, all combined all together. Um, that makes him special. But I think another thing you should consider about uh, McGregor's uh, brain is is how how much of a contribution it is to his striking. Man, I got to say, when they were walking out, I thought Aldo looked you know, maybe a little bit nervous is a big moment, uh, you know, understandably so, but not like in some sort of terrified, petrified way. But when Aldo, or excuse me, when McGregor came out and then flashed that smile back in the tunnel, I was like, I saw that smile a mile, not, I, I, I recognized that smile a mile away. I had talked about it previously on this podcast. Do you guys remember when I brought up Kyle Dake? I saw Kyle Dake's smile when he did that. I swear I did. And I'm not saying you should have or anybody else should have. I'm just saying to me, there was a moment right before you see uh, David Taylor and Kyle Dake shake hands, and Kyle Dake is grinning from ear to ear. And, you know, meanwhile, David Taylor has the sullen look on his face. And there is the same situation you saw there when he flashed it. I was like, oh, man, really? Wow. I couldn't believe it. All of which to say is if you're asking what makes Conor McGregor elite, is he the most elite? I'd like to see a, a, a little bit more work contributed to that direction. But when you combine the um, physical tools that he has, he's long, big power. When you combine 
some of the innovative approaches to striking that he has, some of the more movement-based, you know, not being too restricted into one kind of style and then building off of it. You know, interestingly, I think Jose Aldo beat, uh, built a nice kingdom around his Muay Thai skill set, but ultimately at its core, that's kind of what it was. There's less of a discernible core um, or less of an impressionable, you know, defining core to the striking of Conor McGregor. His is a little bit more open and free, combined with all the physical movement stuff that he adds to it. And then again, the mental acuity right here. I think it's truly his strongest weapon of all things, man. It is just his strongest weapon. And, and at the end of his career, it could end up being his downfall. You get these guys who just have this unbelievable self-belief um, and they refuse to recognize reality. But I don't know if that's really his issue either. I think he seems to be quite perceptive, if anything, uh, greatly self-aware. Conor McGregor listens to his body is observant uh, of the things around him. All these things together make him a good striking um, a talent. You know, all of, all of them together. So, like, for example, you know, maybe I got the pick wrong, but everyone was like, all oh, the leg kicks are going to be huge before the fight. Turns out the leg kicks played no role whatever. Now, maybe you could say the fight was too early to really tell, and, I, you, you know, you'd have a point. Maybe you could say that Aldo was lunging in with punches because he was worried about throwing the uh, leg kicks, and certainly that's something I can't dismiss. But truly, what you can also easily say is that McGregor has a, a, a huge amount of tools um, for nullification early, for icing someone late, um, for just being able – he has so many available opportunities uh, to him that I never believed the fight would come down to just well like it. It turns out it came down to just one punch, at least in this particular scenario. But it just goes to show that there's so many things going on with him um, that whatever their opponent can bring, tremendous leg kicks, um, you know, the fight's not going to be won or lost there. It's going to be won, I thought, on across a, a variety of mediums. Um, but you can't just focus on one, e even with uh, the big power. It's the, he had the mental wherewithal to just calmly retreat and pop him in step. You watch the Monday morning analyst. They're in, they're out, they're in, they're out. He takes a very slight angle and, and literally hits Aldo on the beat in stride. Amazing. And again, if you watch the Monday morning analyst while surrendering outside foot placement, like he just is able to break rules because everything from here to his body is all connected. It's all connected. Whatever is in his brain has such touch on his fingers, on his muscles, on his awareness of the outside world, of, of just being able to read people. And that makes maximum use of his existing physical abilities is he the best in the sport is he the most elite striker i don't know up for debate certainly in the conversation maybe not quite king of the hill ish but if you walked away from ufc 194 you had to walk away with the impression that you were dealing with a special talent there's just no way to no way around it even if aldo made mistakes even if aldo looked i don't know not like himself um he, all the credit in the world to Conor McGregor. All right. So, uh, this has been a question I've seen a thousand times. I got a bunch of emails about it. Um, Frank Fertitta throwing the championship belt on the desk. There is subsequent video evidence and subsequent photos that clearly show Frank Fertitta elated for Conor McGregor, or at least uh, happy in the moment. There was this, you know, tiny little 12 second video of Frank Fertitta seemingly holding the belt. And then upon the fight being stopped, like, picking it up and dropping it, you know, in, in some kind of exaggerated way. And some had questioned, well, this, does this mean that 
the UFC is unhappy because now McGregor has all this leverage. I mean, I'm sure they're not like overly thrilled about the fact that he has leverage as a side note, but I don't think that they were rooting for him in some kind of overt, obvious way, one way or the other, or, or jeering him, um, rooting for his demise. I don't think that's true. I just think that they were all shocked like any of us were, and he had that physical reaction. I, there's just it, the, the evidence is in not particularly strong in asserting that claim. Luke, the version of Connor who showed up versus Mendez, will we see him again? Or did Connor versus Aldo give us a taste of what's to come from Connor? Foot movement and head movement. Last time we saw a good version of that was uh, the Butchinger fight. Um, but he talked about that on that post fight show he did with Stan and Cormier and Bisping and Anik. And he had said prior to the Mendez fight, he just wanted to get in there and sling him. This one, he was cool and calm. I think this one is certainly the more elevated version of himself. This is the older, wiser version. So I suspect you will see the one you saw on Saturday more often. But really, if you think about it, you know, he won that, that Mendez fight, but we saw some chinks in the armor. We saw some things that he had not done well. And again, to what extent he was injured and contributed to all those things, you know, we can have a robust debate about it. But suffice to say, he looked a lot better, even if it was just only 13 seconds of evidence, in, in the Aldo fight versus the Mendez fight. And I, I think that speaks to McGregor's weakness. His mind is his greatest strength. I truly believe this. They're all... Look, maybe he goes undefeated the rest of his career. Anything's possible. And I, I wrote this on Twitter on, on Saturday night. I, I wrote, you know, I keep doubting that. I mean, I don't doubt McGregor. Like, if you read what I wrote about him in the predictions, I gave him all the praise in the world. In fact, I talked about the left and the reach. I just couldn't overlook at the time Aldo's body of work. Um, but I don't even know where I'm going with this. I'm sort of losing my track of thought. Here's the long story short about about uh, McGregor, the first person to beat him is going to be the one that breaks him up here. That's going to be what, what happens. The, the one who breaks him here is going to crack open the code. Once you in, in, If you're able to get even an ounce of doubt in there, either before the fight or even during the fight, especially during the fight, if you could begin to get him to question things or not commit to things, and this is no small task, mind you. This is an incredibly difficult task. Um, then that's the guy who's going to win. And I guess the point I was making about what I wrote about him, I never doubted his his abilities. I, I just, I didn't think Aldo would not show up in the way that he did. Uh, not physically, but like the style of attack. Um, but Aldo never put McGregor, he never put McGregor in any kind of distress or mental pressure never he was this constant recipient of things and he gave a little bit back at the weigh-ins but you know at that point it's too little too late everything's already done and he mcgregor already felt the way he felt he was already doing all those movement drills to and you could say you know by the way as a side note like one of the other benefits of those movement drills is it just puts him at ease mentally it seems like you know it's re it's relaxing for him it's it helps it's relaxing while it helps with concentration and focus um and it does enough of the stress release and physical exertion to keep his mind working where it's supposed to go. So just as a side note there. But I really believe whoever eventually beats him is going to do that. I mean, I guess if you just, you know, land a punch and sleep him that he doesn't see, you know, all right, that, that might do the trick or whatever. But or, or maybe he loses again by, you know, someone just steamrolls him and puts him on the ground like Joe Duffy did and then submits him. Maybe that's what happens. But more likely than not, the guy that gets him is going to be the guy that begins to put a little crack in here. Because so far, 
The only time he's shown any weakness, like he did in that Mendez fight, was when he wasn't was when he did want to just bite down on the mouthpiece a little bit. But when he's calm and cool and collected, he's going to be tough to beat, man. He's going to be really, really tough to beat. You're gonna you're gonna have to get in there without getting knocked out, and you're gonna have to find a way to make him start questioning himself. And that may that may take two, three rounds of beatings, if that even works, you know. Um, but as long as his mind and his body connected, that he believes in his ha- power, that he believes in his ability to affect things with his body by what his mind is telling him, and as long as there that bond is together, that there's confidence all the way through. His mind is sharp, his body is sharp, and his mind and his body are ready to work together. He's going to be tough to beat. All right, so someone asked me this from email, and then I pasted it into the uh, comments here. Since Chris Weidman has been dethroned now, do you feel like Anderson Silva could be considered in the mix for the middleweight title shot later in 2016 if he he wins convincingly on his return fight? You know, this is something that I got a lot of emails about, and it surprised me because I didn't even consider it to be perfect. I don't even think of Anderson Silva as a contender anymore. Um, I'm not saying that someone with his popularity with a few wins wouldn't be right back in there. I think that could happen sort of like a Uriah Faber kind of situation where if they win just enough and they hang around long enough and they're popular enough and there's no better option, they might get one. I mean, he's obviously earned legitimately a number of title shots, but I think we can all agree that the popularity of Uriah Faber has guided him to certain heights that maybe he wouldn't, or, you know, repeated heights, I should say, that he maybe wouldn't have got if he was unpopular or he was just resume alone. But um, so maybe he's a situation like that. Maybe Anderson could be like that. But I don't really think of him as a contender. I don't know that he would. I mean, if Romero wanted to, I think Romero could beat him. Um, Jacques Ray could beat him. Certainly the top two guys can beat him. Vitor, I don't think can beat him, but we'll see. But I, I, I won't dismiss the possibility that just some resume building wins um, and being who he is might put him in the spot. But I think if you're realistically, and I, I'm not saying this person is, but if you out there, because I got a lot of questions about this, shockingly, you know, you never want to be too certain in MMA. <laughs> it will, it will lead you astray. But at the current juncture. I don't know if I see a lot of evidence to believe that Anderson Silva can be really any kind of legitimate title contender in terms of put him in there against the eventual champion and it's a competitive fight. I I have a hard time seeing that, even if the belt changes hands to a Romero or a Jacare at some point. Luke, you have repeatedly said that you don't believe fighters at this level are subject to mind games. It's not exactly what I said, but okay. You said that about Mendez and again about Aldo in relation to Connor's psychological warfare. After seeing the Aldo fight, do you want to touch on that again? It seemed plainly obvious to me that Aldo was overwhelmed by the whole experience, and at least part of that was un- undoubtedly due to McGregor's constant abuse and trash talk. Um, you know, again, w- this is a lot of speculation. You mean, after seeing the fight, you want to touch on that again? It seemed plainly obvious to me that Aldo was overwhelmed. Um, that you know, there's just not a lot of evidence to suggest that. These are all things that we sort of paste onto a fight. Absent what's going on up there. Let me let me make a point. Let me just take a step back. Absent, if you didn't know anything about these two, but you knew a lot about striking and you watched this bout, you could easily conclude the reasons about why someone lost. Okay. Um, number two, 
this is an extraordinarily heightened environment. Um, you're going to be reading into things as best as you can. And I think that will lead you to positive directions of insight. It will also lead to overreach. Let me make these points before I finish. Uh, that's the second thing I would say. I think the third thing I would say is, so you have this technique breakdown, you have this incredibly heightened environment. Um, if you were going to make that argument, what would you say to convincingly? You would say that the way in which Aldo didn't really move his head um, and didn't sell the right hand to fire the left is sort of a little bit uncharacteristic about him. That's what you would say. Now, what is that evidence of? Is that evidence of bad strategy? Is that evidence of having his mind messed with? What is that? When you say things with such conviction that, oh, it was obvious to me, after 13 seconds and one punch, it was obvious to you? Maybe it was. And I don't think that all fighters uh, are immune to this kind of thing. For example, what it works both ways, right? If you're Conor McGregor and you're so mentally strong, there's going to be someone on the other side that even though they have a lot of skill and ability, they're not going to have that same kind of, you know, uh, again, bulletproof mentality. So it's going to, there's going to be a sliding scale. But I just feel like if you're going to make that argument, you got to have some like really strong evidence. Uh, and maybe a 13 second knockout is strong evidence for you. Maybe it is. Um, but for me, really, the only uh, uh, clear evidence for that, if you want to put it there, would be the way in which Aldo fought by you know, a guy who has pretty good head movement. It doesn't really rush like that, being just a little bit um, you know, overexerting himself in quick, in quick space without really doing a lot of proper setup. Uh, that, that would be the evidence. Is that plainly obvious to some? I suppose that it is. If you want to see it, I can't argue you out of it. Um, but I would just be very, very cautious at all times about um, you never want to dismiss what's going on in a fighter's head. I truly believe that to the point you might be making, they live and die there. But you also not you need to be very careful about to what extent you are saying that is the factor in which, um, you know, what is more important, that or the or, or just a technique differential? Because to me, it seems like a big technique differential. If Aldo fights him again, are you expecting something radically different? Um, maybe a longer version? Maybe some points where, you know, McGregor does get laid out a couple times or, you know, hit real hard? Yeah, but at some point, you know, the body of evidence about his power, about his use of it, and now about his ability to shift um, and, and use um, a wider array of attacks based on his greater appreciation of different sets of movement, you know, you have to kind of take that seriously too. So if you want to see it, I can't talk you out of it. Um, and to, to some extent, I think that, um, you know, he, if anyone was feeling the pressure, he was feeling it more than McGregor. But I don't know, man. I'm one of these kinds of guys who when you see a one person beat another and it looks a certain way, um, even if it's an exaggerated example, I like to give the benefit of the doubt to the victor uh, in terms of just, um, you know, not playing, not winning because you played mind games. I mean, it may have contributed a little bit, but he beat him on technique, man. He beat him fair and square. I think if this is messed up, I don't know how fair that is. You know, is that a fair representation of that person? And maybe the 13-second version we saw of Jose was not a fair representation. It was just, it was just so little. You know, the, the, you, you can credibly make that argument, sure. But for me, I don't know. I don't know. I'm always going to lean in a direction of you got beat on technique, especially at this level. Especially, I mean, you can't have both ways. You can't have it. Is McGregor the most elite striker in MMA, or did he beat this diminished Jose? Which is it?
Which is it? It's not. It's not because it can't be both. You can't lay this as evidence of greatness if what you're saying is the guy who he beat was a completely diminished version of himself. If you if you want to argue one, I'm not saying you are, but if you're out there, you can't have both. You can't have oh McGregor beat him on mind games, and so he was just out there making all these kinds of mistakes. Versus, I'm sure he was nervous to a understandable degree, but McGregor beat him because he's better. Like legitimately better, you get the two are connected, so you need to be very careful about how you're going to make that argument. But sure, competition involves mindset. Competition involves how you're functioning, mental acuity, and I'm sure he was feeling some pressure. But in that moment, I don't know. Um, I don't know that all the stuff on the world tour mattered anymore at that point. I think more just, uh, um, you know what? Maybe the ring rust mattered more than anything else. I had thought, as you saw in this chat, I don't know how much ring rust is going to matter because he had the two back-to-back camps. I think one of the analysts on Fox even said that. Um, They thought the same thing later on. I think think it was during the weigh-in show, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong. But whatever the case, they had said it as well. I was like, oh, well, there you go. I can't be the only one who thinks this way. But um, maybe that's what did him in, you know? Why is that not a part of the discussion now? I think if you're going to say of anything, the fact that he had, you know, 14, 15 months off, all of a sudden that's not relevant. I mean, maybe my theory about the two back-to-back camps is just totally incorrect, you know? So it's a lot of – it's a lot. It's just – there's just not a lot of evidence, I think, to boldly claim, oh, well, there's mind games. To me, there's a lot of evidence to say um, that wasn't the best version of Jose Aldo, but it's too incomplete to draw broad conclusions. And the one conclusion that we can draw by watching the video was that he technically got beat. I really think that's the that's the that's the most centered approach you can have. All right, Demi and Maya. If Demi had dropped to welterweight a year or two earlier, would he have won the belt by now? Late 30s and still looking fantastic against top competition. The strength advantage he had compared to middleweight seems to be very beneficial. But would, would it be too much of a struggle for him to get to the Woodleys, Hendrixes, and Lawlers to the ground? Eventually, that buck's going to stop, if not at all three. Uh, certainly Lawler, because we talked about Lawler's takedown defense being absolutely phenomenal. But, you know, certainly Demi and Maya, man, he has just such an incredible style, and I, I've really respected it. I th- and I've said this before, and I, and I believe it. He has the best trip takedowns in the game. The best trip takedowns in the game. Yeah, he doesn't have great doubles, and and he's got you know he's got a single leg. He works occasionally, uh, and I'm sure he could do a double leg if you you know if he needed to. But his trips, he gets that body lock, and he finds a way to stick to you. He gets a leg behind yours and takes you to your weak plane, or over your weak plane, and and uh, and there you go, man. You go down. Finds a way to always have a leg entanglement of some kind. Um, doesn't take a lot of punishment in trying to get to these positions. Forces you to make bad choices by locking you up in a certain way where you can go one way, but then he's just going to get you the other. He does a lot of these misdirection choice things. He's pretty incredible, man. I don't know that he can beat those top guys. Maybe he can because they can match him in strength and they got good wrestling. If they got, if they really practice the act of separation, um, you know, then they'll be in good space. But what it, it looks like that the key mistake that Nelson made was Neil Nelson was saying before the fight openly. Yeah. I hope there are some ground exchanges because I'm sure he truly believed if it went to the ground, he could at least nullify, if not find a way to get on top. And, you know, he's got, you know, acumen with his fists. Yes. Standing, but 
it's not like ground and pound is some sort of um, foreign world to him. I think he thought he could really do well and maybe even match him for jiu-jitsu. Maybe pass his guard. You know, the guy is getting older, to your point. Turned out that separation was the key. That if there was going to be a skill differential, it was going to be on the ground or the, the feet. And Maya was going to allow none of it. And it was amazing what he was doing, just taking him back to mount and, you know, not giving Nelson anything to work with. It was it was phenomenal what he was able to do. I you know, I question his ability to rise to the very, very upper limit when there's a big physical difference. Um, or when guys can match him physically and they're maybe a little bit better, faster, quicker athletes, good takedown defense, good separation, you know, he can fall apart. But uh, anyone under that, boy, Demian Maya's out there playing for keeps, is he not? Uh, what was your immediate reaction to Jose Aldo getting sparked cold in 13 seconds? Um, partly relief that it was all over, that this whole episode was over, believe it or not. And then um, I thought, Okay, end of debate. And there you go. That's the evidence I needed to see, you know, or wh- whatever, you know, depending on your perspective, I'm sure. For me, it was like, okay, your boy's got skills. No doubt about it. That's impressive. My first my first reaction was like, okay, there you go. Good. Fair enough. Now we know. It was, it was just like that. Uh, Conor McGregor and movement training, a little bit more of this. I know a lot of was made was uh, I know a lot was made of Conor's use of movement and that coach Ido Portal and the lead up to the fight. But what did you make of this kind of training? So a lot is being made, and again, Dominic Cruz has talked about it. Again, um, um, others are doing it as well. Oh, Michael Venom Page is doing a little bit of it, um, and I mentioned before Carlos Condit. So it's not Conor McGregor is not the first person to use it in MMA, but he's certainly the face of it. He's the most guy. The guy's made it the most popular and the most talked about, so that he deserves credit for that contribution. But you know what's funny about movement? People are talking about movement as its own thing, and I don't believe you should do that. I believe that you should view movement as a larger part of training correction. So here's what I think is happening. There's been one, two, I feel like it's kind of like the third generation of post-tough MMA fighters to really come through the ranks. I mean, you, it depends how you want to define the generations, but this is kind of how I feel about it. There were the people that came from the original tough, then the students who came from the guys in the original tough, and now you're seeing the the next generation of that um, come to the ranks. And again, everyone at different parts of the game is using the, the movement. But I, I, here's what I mean to say. In the second generation, and certainly in this third generation, fighters looked around and said, wait a second. This style of like, let's call it the Militich style of, of, you know, 2004, 2005 MMA, that doesn't work. Or at least it works for a little while, but it has a lot of drawbacks. If we want to be able to contribute for a long time to the sport, we want to have long careers, we want to make big money and preserve ourselves, we got to start doing some things differently. And and this has only really happened, I think, um, people even starting to think about it. And there's lots of things they do less. They might do some yoga. They might just cut back on sparring. They might have done, you know, look at George St. Pierre. George St. Pierre was doing, if you think about it, George St. Pierre was maybe one of the first movement guys. Because what was George St. Pierre doing years ago? Gym, he would stopped lifting weights, I think, for a time or had cut back on them and was doing gymnastics drills. Remember on, I think it was the prior to the Shields fight. Do you remember like the UFC, um, what was it called? UFC Uncensored or UFC... God, I can't remember the name now, like the competition to HBO 24-7 show where it showed him like flipping over, like getting in a push-up position and then flipping all the way around 
and doing it again and going back to the other side and then handstands and rolling through. Those are much motion training, man. That's movement training. That's what that is. A little bit more uh, maybe strict in its interpretation of it. But if you watch some of Ido Portal's videos, he talks about gymnasts all the time, and he talks about the most the, the most reliable tool to use for movement is the double Olympic rings. He talks about that as well. So to me, if you look go back on that, McGregor is hardly the first. You're not the first at all. Just the first to make it really popular, the first to really make it something interesting. And I think George was also one of those guys who was thinking, you know, I, I need some different training benefits. How do I get that? How do I explore that? It just so happens that some of the movement training has benefits for your technique and it has benefits for self-preservation. But this wider application of it is not because in and of itself, let's just take movement. I think it's part of a larger focus on redefining training, again, to open up possibility, but to really preserve the body, to really get you from point A to point B in a healthy, functional open, thoughtful, mind-to-body connected kind of way. That, that's what I think. Um, maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's not part of that. Um, and we had kind of taken Georgia St. Pierre gymnastics training for its own thing as entirely separate. But if you ask me, that guy was the first guy, at least to my knowledge, um, openly incorporating movement training in a way that you know was trying to benefit the rest of his career. Let's see. They see a potential McGregor-Edgar fight going. Let me say something first, because then he goes McGregor-Edgar and then McGregor-Dos Anjos. Let's assume Dos Anjos wins this weekend. You don't want to sleep on Cerrone. I don't like his chances, but who cares what I, what I like. By the way, everyone give me crap for the UFC 194 predictions. Did you all see how I did before that? UFC Fight Night 80 got them all correct. Now, there was a I put with uh, Carlos Jr. and Casey, so I didn't get that one, but no one did, okay? But all the fights that happened, got them all correct. Second night, Ultimate Fighter 22 finale, got them all correct. Two nights in a row on two UFC events, and then, of course, you know, pretty mediocre on um, to bad on uh, Saturday night. But as a body of work, pretty good. So lighten up on Twitter a little bit, will you? But uh, Edgar Mend- or, uh, McGregor Edgar, that reach for McGregor, the movement's going to be too much. I really believe that. He might get a takedown. He might pass. But I think McGregor's, you know, one thing I think I've reconsidered a little bit is his patient defense on the ground. Um, his ability to avoid a submission, I think, is very, very good. He'll get back to the feet, and he'll just do too much damage on the feet. Now, here's the question. Let's assume RDA beats uh, Cerrone. And so he retains his championship. And McGregor moves up and gets a fight against him. I have to think more about how I think that's going to go. But one thing you have to reconsider after watching the Aldo fight now is that the power of McGregor will translate better to 155 than maybe some believed, including me. I now legitimately believe he would be one of the harder punchers at 155. Now, how much? I don't know. There's just not a lot of evidence for me to really look at from a modern context. You can watch the Cage Warriors McGregor. It's just not the same guy. Of course, he's maintained a few things. Yes, no doubt about it, but... You know, he's so much more advanced now that you have to respect that and acknowledge how different it is. So I don't know how he do against those Angels, but I do think that the conversation about McGregor at 155 is different now. You have to respect the differences. You have to look at what happened and say, again, I don't think he beat, was it the best Jose Aldo? I don't know. Probably not, but you got to respect how good Conor McGregor is, how good his technique is, and how real 
his power is. It's real, ladies and gentlemen. You have to admit it. All right. Um, someone says, should I stream myself watching fights, especially these big fights? Who would want to see that? I'm shocked y'all want to see this, much, much less that. But what I might do is maybe Periscope after the fights, you know, if they're real big, and talk about them then. But, I, you know, I also just want to go to sleep, so. Um, Connor and that nine-figure contract, baby. Could that really be that – could that really be possible? Look, here's the truth about all of these uh, – here's the truth about all of these talks about McGregor's money and really any fighter's money. We simply don't know. We just make a lot of assumptions. Could the UFC be saying that because it's possible at the upper end if everything hits and they want to look like that because they want to look like they're paying their guys at a time when they're being sued? Maybe. Are they saying it because it's just the unadulterated truth? Maybe. Um, Who knows why they're saying that? Who knows if it's even true? I really find a lot of these discussions, you want to have them, you want to say... Um, with some kind of certainty that you feel like these guys are getting paid at this level if they're doing the kinds of things that Conor McGregor is. And look, I hope he's the first guy who's making a, a $100 million or more. Somebody needs to. It's long overdue. It's totally long overdue that someone get paid like that. So sure, I absolutely hope so. I don't know that to what extent it's really true. And again, you, we all know that the public money that is shown is only a, a portion of what they usually get on top of the Reebok sponsorship and anything else. Um, but I'm just very, very hesitant to get into these kinds of discussions. If you're asking me, do I think it's possible? Sure, I will say it's possible. But I would always be very, very cautious about uh, the UFC announcing what kind of pay somebody could get when you know they've said that doing such has such negative repercussions for a fighter's career. Um, of course, they mentioned it was specific figures, but if you're saying nine, if you're saying a hundred million, that's specific enough. So I'm I'm a little bit wary about you know when the UFC says this guy can make this amount of money. Well, okay, why don't you tell us specifically what it is, and then everyone else along the line, like why would you just tell us about this? Is there a PR purpose involved? So I'm I'm not doubting it's true. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's not true. I can't make any comment on it in a reliable way until I believe we have a reliable amount of information. And I, I honestly believe if you if you try to talk about these things with any kind of certainty without it, especially something like this, it's, it's just too filled with uh, complicating factors. Could you elaborate on the rumors of discord between McGregor and UFC brass? A lot of fighters are uh, playing out their contract, although he just signed a new one. Yeah, someone says the running of his own press and McGregor's understanding of the fight game and all its machinations seem to be unparalleled. Uh, someone goes, he's Machiavellian in his thinking. Boy, so, and I wrote this on Twitter on Saturday night. And people got all bitter about it because, of course, Twitter is a terrible place to have a discussion. I really hate Twitter. I absolutely hate Twitter. I think it's the worst place on earth. And yet I'm addicted to it. I've got like 75,000 tweets, which tells you what an idiot I am. Um, but on Twitter, I wrote, you know, for a guy who lacks a formal education, Conor McGregor might be the smartest person in the room. And, of course, every clown out there wrote me being like, well, just because you don't have a college degree doesn't mean you're not smart. Yes, of course, geniuses. Everyone know that. A college degree is not a signifier of intelligence. It's not an intelligence test. Everyone knows this. Why are you writing to me this nonsense? Okay? I got so bitter about it. But it's also true that if someone is truly brilliant, 
more often than not, they're going to be drawn into and, in fact, recruited by academia for purposes of filling out the kinds of uh, endeavors that only people of those minds have. If you're truly brilliant, that is often, but not always, early identified, and, and those kinds of people are usually in, by hook or by crook, academia as they're ushered in. This is just a true statement, and you don't have to like it, but it's true. But, of course, there are plenty of people who are brilliant who may not get identified in that way, not because it doesn't happen to everyone, um, or they may have certain skills that academia doesn't have a lot of use for, whatever the case may be. I don't know what McGregor's particular makeup is, but I can tell you this, when he talks, boy, this is a guy who has thought about things. This is a guy who observes things. This is a guy who understands power relationships. It's a guy who understands timing, not just in the ring, but timing outside of the cage, timing about when to say certain things, when to push certain things, when to withdraw from certain things, when to make things known, what to make known. Um, he is extraordinarily brilliant when it comes to that. This is a true, true thing. I'm telling you, that's why if you got to beat McGregor, got to start here. Got to start here. And I don't mean that by mind games necessarily. If you can do that, good on you. What I think is really going to happen if someone ever gets to him here, it's going to be inside the cage. Because it's going to be hard to match him outside in that way, but this is this is his such a strength for him. He is it's not just confidence; it's how his mind and his body relate. It's how he understands the world. It's how he thinks about himself. It's about how he understands who he is and his strengths and how to make them bigger strengths and how to and how to uh, you know just he just has such a keen understanding of the living world, um, and I think that is such an asset. It's an asset in ways where you just don't see it from a lot of other fighters, even smart guys, even college graduates. Um, they don't. They 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 don't have a they, a college graduate might have more um, early fo forced exposure to the world, you know, or and to ideas and to things, right? Because you're in those classes and you're learning from other people and you're learning about the ancient Greeks or whatever. And um, you know, someone who doesn't have that doesn't have that kind of early exposure. But what McGregor has is such a keen insight about humanity itself, about himself, and the interplay all of all of it. He is going to be a handful, man. If he keeps winning, his negotiating power is going to be outrageous. It's going to be outrageous. If he can keep winning, he can do things for himself and maybe the rest of the game that nobody else can do. John Jones can still do a lot. We'll see. He's still got a ton of power and really a lot of career left. I think, what, he and Connor are the same age? Maybe he's even younger than Connor. Something like that. They're pretty close in age. So both of them have a lot of time left to really contribute big things. Um, and if Jones can win, he can also do things. But Conor McGregor just seems like, you know, he doesn't mess up when he's outside of fighting. Um, and I also want to say one more thing about McGregor that I really think influenced all the movement stuff. Um, the ACL tear. The ACL tear, I thought about this maybe a few days ago. The ACL tear for him, when he had to physically recover, if you go back and you watch some of his interviews with Ariel, he was talking about like how ahead of schedule he was, how much he was, how, how much more limber it made him because it put him in touch with his own biology and how things worked and how they worked together. Um, and I think that maybe got him started thinking about things, about really getting the wheels in motion about how to train properly for himself at the next level. So it has these tactical benefits because it conceals offense but again it has these other re physical rehabilitative effects that you need maybe in the middle of the end of a camp he's a smart dude man he's a smart smart dude there's a question about herb dean here um 
Luke Herb Dean has often been considered to be one of the best referees in the sport today, but his officiating in 194's co-main event tells a much different story. I was horrified when Herb allowed a defenseless Chris Weidman to take at least 50 unanswered shots from full mount. Um, Weidman undoubtedly received career-changing damage. Again, how do you know it's undoubtedly? Career-changing damage. Uh, it's certainly disconcerting damage, but we don't know that it's undoubtedly. There's plenty of doubt. At the end of the third round in their title fight, What's more confusing is that Herb closely stood over both fighters as if he was going to stop it at first, but inexplicably let Chris, Chris's battering continue. What were your thoughts on Herb's officiating on Saturday night, and should he face punishment at the hands of the NCC for his actions? Well, should he? Is he going to? Absolutely irrelevant questions. It's Nevada. They're going to do nothing, even if they should. So you can just forget about that. Um. My response to the question would be, if you want to argue that the fight should have been stopped in the third, I will not argue with you. I don't really think there's a strong argument to be made that the fight should have continued. However, and this is maybe the, the first time I ever felt like this, I, I, I just can't argue the fight should have continued. This argument that it should have been stopped is much, much stronger. However, there is a part of me, if I'm just telling you honestly how I feel. I, I'm not sure I can defend it, but I should be candid and say I wasn't upset that they didn't stop it. I thought that when he stopped it in the fourth, again, that was a, you know, if you didn't know what happened in the third, you would still say the stoppage in the fourth was clean, right? And it gave, like, Chris Weidman will go back to New Jersey, or I'm sorry, yeah, Long Island, and he will say, no one can look at him and say, you didn't have every opportunity to keep your title. And you could even maybe say that from Mount in the third. Again, I can't argue against it. I'm just telling you, when they didn't stop it, I wasn't as horrified by it. And I thought when it was all over in the fourth, I was like, okay, dude, like there, there's no argument anymore. There's no argument. You, you just had your title taken from you. Period. Absolutely, period. If you want to say that would have been the exact same in the third, I, I don't know. I can't argue with it. I just can't argue with it. But in the moment on Saturday when they didn't stop it, I was like, I don't hate it, you know? All right, another question from my inbox. Good question. I was wondering where you stand on fence grabs in MMA. There were at least three fighters this past week who grabbed the fence to gain an advantage while grappling. Tim Means, Joel Romero, and Chris Weidman. Uh, means his response was, quote, uh, he, he admits he grabbed the fence hard because he knew he wouldn't get a warning at first. At least he admitted there's a flaw to the system. Do you think the fence grab should result in an immediate point deduction, or are you content with the way it's currently handled? Well, that's a false question because it's not just the way – it's not an either or. It's not point grab or nothing often or, you know, get your hands out of there, and they smack the hand away. It's 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 not all or nothing. There's, there could be an in-between. For example – Brian Stan has been a big proponent of the idea that if you can reasonably conclude that there would have been a takedown, even if the guy would have popped back up, you start him on the ground, maybe in side control or half guard or in full guard, depending on what the takedown was and how it was looking or whatever the case may be. I think that's a very fair compromise. I also think that if the f here is why MMA refereeing is so difficult because there is such a strong amount of discretion and latitude given to the referees 
frankly, because you have to. It's not like, I mean, look, there are judgment calls all the time, and there's a lot of debate about it in the NFL, but there's a lot of really observable penalties, right? Um, you know, a neutral zone infraction is a false start. Uh, somebody doesn't, again, these are partly judgment calls, but they're a lot easier to make. Or, or you know, you don't get the the, the ball out, the, the play started before um, the play clock finishes. So you get a play clock violation. Or blocking in the back or, you know, holding, offensive holding. You can see horse collar tackle. You know, these are – a horse collar tackle is, is, is pretty easy to identify. It's a little bit harder to identify and on the clearest terms what would have happened with the takedown had they not grabbed the fence. Would they have got it and the guy would have gotten back up? Would they got it and the guy would have gone to mount and submitted him? There's just a lot of power you put in the hand of the referee – to make interpretations and on-the-spot decisions. And that's why you get a lot of inconsistency. That's why you get a lot of guys who maybe look at things one way, but other ones have a different philosophy. Maybe they saw it differently because of the angle. Um, it's it's really, really difficult for those reasons, not merely because the amount of variables interacting in MMA makes for complicated situations, but, but reading them uh, in the appropriate way, even with a good vantage point, can often be very difficult. Deciding what's what can be difficult. So what I guess I would say is more needs to be done. So I think you should give an automatic warning in the locker room. Now, I'm not going to warn you for an infraction. I'm going to warn you in saying we're going to be really, really, really tight on fence grabbing. And I know they might give them a warning about it or a lecture about it or a message about it prior to a fight, but I mean heavily emphasize it. We know in the past that a lot of guys have been able to grab the fence without a whole lot of you know um, points being taken or positions being surrendered, it's not going to be the case here tonight. If you guys do it, we're not there's going to be no verbal warning to you. I'm not going to just smack your hands away. Um, you know, you're going to either get put on the ground, or you're going to get to take a point, or or that's it. There's going to be no really in between, or you know, stand them up, or whatever the case calls for the particular arrangement. But it's difficult, man. It's really, really difficult. And and then you begin to say, um, well, I don't have so much. You know, are you having an unhealthy focus on one thing? But but. The argument is clear that something more should be done. But when you look at how all of these things are processed, how how intentional was it? How impactful was it? Um, what would have happened had they gone to the ground? Where would they have been? It's a lot for a referee to process. It's a lot to make a judgment call about that. And so that's why you see this wide disparity in terms of outcomes. But I think if your general argument is, okay, all that being said, there could be more being done. I agree. You got to go in there. You got to say no warnings. Something has to be done. Either put them on the ground, either separate them, or take a point. Got to be one of the three. You see anyone beating Rockhold in the near future? His dominant performance looks even more impressive considering he was pretty physically compromised with antibiotics the last few weeks. Uh, <clears throat> has the Rockhold era begun? Well, I got to say... And watching that, we all knew that was going to be a really tough, close fight. But I kind of thought towards the end, um, you know, when it went to the grappling, that would just be where the difference would work. And I thought, I, I, I thought, you know, Rockhold would make a strong account of it, maybe get a close submission, create a lot of scrambles, that, you know, not not just lay there on his back. I thought he would, you know, make make him work for it, but it would just he would eventually would look the other way. Eventually, one person would get overwhelmed. Boy, that was not the case, huh? Go back and watch the Monday Morning Analyst, man. If you guys didn't watch, the way that Rockhold takes him out, I mean, like, he just 
cork screws on top in the tightest, most pressure-bound mount establishment you're likely to see in a championship fight. Uh, Matt, you know, to borrow from Ray Hudson, magisterial um, is what it was. And the people had complained, well, you know, Rockhold or uh, Wyman didn't really buck back. He bucked a little bit. He tried to get on his shoulders, but he was just controlled and outmuscled, basically. Um, and and I don't think he really had it in him. When someone gets mounted on you like that, you have to violently go bridging side to side, pushing them the whole time to get them off of you. It has to be this this like constant violent disruption of mount. If you're not willing to to commit to that, and maybe Wyman wasn't because he was tired, um, then you know, of course, he's not going to technically escape. You have to you have to like go crazy to get out of that, you know, in a technical way, but you have to really drive it, you know. Um, but the question about Rockhold. I don't know. You know, we'll see what happens with him. Uh, he certainly looked beyond impressive. He certainly looked, uh, you know, a little bit of a slow starter. I thought it was going to be Wyman who was a slow starter. It was actually the opposite. Rockhold was the slow starter. So that was really interesting. Um, we'll see. I don't know how much Romero is going to be of a match for him. But, you know, again, another one of these guys where now that we're past 194, Boy, you got to give some credit to Rockhold for just how good he looked and how important that was, and how, um, and how and how impactful his development has been. I want to give a quick shout out if I can to Duke Rufus. Duke Rufus did a Periscope chat the next day, I think, and he said something very interesting in it, which was um, he made a good point. So he goes, if you're in like normal kickboxing or whatever, because they are in a glory fight or something, you can throw that spinning back or that, that wheel kick that Weidman threw in virtually the same way. And when you fall down, what's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is they're going to separate you and they're going to stand you back up and they're going to start striking at range again. In other words, in traditional forms of kickboxing, you can use these things more liberally because if you fall, there really aren't major consequences for it. I mean, it's not fun to fall, but it's not really all that big a deal, is it? Um, so you have a lot more uh, ease with which you can throw some of these techniques. And um, these guys, because they practice just striking, are going to be better at it anyway. So it's not just that in kickboxing, guys are better at it, so they're able to throw it more. It's that they might just be throwing it more because if they miss, you know, and they fall down, so what? Just get right back up. In MMA, if you miss and you get a body lock on you, uh, you're in trouble. You're in trouble at that point, especially when you get like Luke Rockhold on your back and then you get Luke Rockhold in mount and then Luke Rockhold starts pounding you into um, oblivion. Bad things can happen, man. Real bad things can happen. So shout out to Duke Rufus. I thought it was a great point uh, on his Periscope chat and I want to repeat it here related to that wheel kick and to Rockhold's future. Again, how good is he going to be? Let's see, let's see him put a body of work together. Again, what is the most important fact about success in MMA? Sustained dominance. Sustained dominance. And maybe Aldo's came to a crashing end, but that body of work he put in. If Sean Alshadi is writing articles about you that where he never talks to you, but he talks to all the people that you beat, you know, yeah, you may lose the, the next fight thereafter, but he's documenting something that is so very difficult to do. Sustained dominance. 
Yeah, this is an interesting question. Luke, Brendan Schaub and to a lesser degree, Joe Rogan, have spoken a lot about the ways fighters look and perform in this new era of testing. We just saw uh, Jose get KO'd in 13 seconds and many people talking about him looking softer than normal. But, okay, look, I was not in attendance at UFC 194, but I've spoken to many people who were. No one said a word that Aldo looked in any way physically out of sorts. Now, certainly, um, certainly Joe Rogan's got a wonderful view of it, better than mine. But let me just say this. From someone who has not been there, and talk to people who, who were, there's not a lot of evidence. Moreover, from a photographic standpoint and from a video standpoint, there's virtually no evidence to support that claim. Now, I don't know what he knows on the inside. I don't have maybe the, the keen eye that Joe has, so I cannot say he's wrong. I'm just saying from this side of the fence and from what evidence I'm able to collect, that is a very weak claim. All right. But there's also numerous other fighters mentioned. We also just saw Ronda not luck herself with some talk about her not looking as muscular as before. What are the chances the increased testing has affected her? I mean, this is just unsubstantiated rumor mongering. I'm not going to get into this. Good question. Very good question. How do you think UFC will deal with Aldo from now on? It's clear they won't grant him an immediate rematch, even though they set a precedent with Ronda, Kane, Silva, and Burrell. All of these were brutally and or at least thoroughly beaten, not even if not in 13 seconds. And some say a long, brutal beating uh, has even more about, uh, says even more about the superiority of a fighter. So these were all very different, though. Ronda, tremendous upset. Kane, not as much of an upset as Ronda's, but an upset. Anderson Silva, the first time, you know, uh, I think in the minds of certainly a legion of fans, if not the odds, upset. And Burrell, upset. Now, you can say that uh, McGregor fight was an upset depending how you want to look at it, and it may not be too far from the Kane fight or whatever the case may be. You can make some arguments that we're just talking about a difference in degree, not a difference in kind. I, I would submit to you there's a difference in kind here. With all of the situations you're talking about, there is a real shock value, and there's a shock value to the way that Jose Aldo lost. There cannot be a shock value to that Jose Aldo lost. Remember, if you're really agonizing pre-fight over your fight picks, like, ah, I just don't know who to go with here, that's because you take seriously the chance that both guys can win. So that Jose Aldo lost is really not surprising. 13 seconds, okay, that's obviously, I don't know how many people saw that coming. Um, Burrell, Silva, Kane, and Ronda were all kind of shocking. Again, the one about Velasquez, in retrospect, maybe not as much, but he has a certain value to you know these burgeoning markets that um, UFC is trying to get into. And Aldo does it. And frankly, I'm not sure I want to see Aldo in an immediate rematch. I got to be honest. Look, if they booked him in an immediate rematch, I don't. I wouldn't hate it. I, I, this would not be a terrible thing. But I really feel like Aldo and McGregor have had this like, you know, bond, um, this covalent bond, man, for a long time, and it has gotten a little bit stale. And it kind of ended. It was just such a quick. You asked me what I thought about after the fight. I was like, okay, end of argument. It's kind of how I felt about it. I was like, end of argument. Let's have a new argument. <laughs> Let's have a new argument between McGregor and Edgar. And in the meanwhile, I don't want – Aldo just got brutally knocked out for the first time in his career. Let's give him a little bit of time off. You know, I'm sure he wants to get right back in there. Okay, if you want to get right back in there, put him right back in there with somebody who is a lesser contender. What's the problem with that? Get him back on his feet. Get him, you know, get everything going again. Let's be a little bit more accommodating of giving guys some tune-up fights, man. That's how I believe. You, you wouldn't want to see Aldo in a fight where he was like a minus 700 favorite? I would. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't want to see that every time, but next time, sure, why not? 
Meanwhile, you get Edgar, and and it turns out I've listened to John Cavanaugh on the on the MMA Hour. He doesn't want Connor to wait till UFC 200. He wants to get him back in there. Good, me too. Let's go. Let's figure this out. Let's 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 see what kind of legacy he can build. Now that he's champion, now the real work starts. You're not fighting the Marcus Brimages of the world anymore. Let's let's see what he can do. So you can argue that this might be unfair to Aldo, and I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad argument, but. I, I I really believe that Ronda Kane, Silva Baralis were shocking upsets for the most part, at least to certain groups of people, or the way in which they happened. Um, in, co- in conjunction with that, for me, Aldo, the way he lost, surprising, sure. That he lost, not really. Another great, great questions today, you guys. Great, great questions. Re- really good questions. Another good one. Chris Weidman's training partners. You mentioned that Weidman was convinced the way he had set up his camp, totally focused on him with great coaches and less spectacular training partners, was ideal for him. Less than spectacular. Well, no, that's not quite true, again, because he's training with some world-class black belts and Wonderboy Thompson. Those are all legit. It's just that he doesn't have as many of these like championship-caliber guys all over him on a daily basis. It's not that they're all less than spectacular. you got to be real precise about the terms here. But anyway. After being outmatched by someone that's arguably his physical and athletic equal that also happens to have some of the greatest training partners in the world, is Chris going to have to reevaluate? So I thought about this too. Um, Luke Rockhold's claim was that, you know, he had butterflies before sparring because, you know, someone's going to put it on him. And, um, you know, Luke Rockhold's argument is that, or I'm sorry, uh, Chris Weidman's argument is that, you know what, you stay in these camps, they're going to just grind you to a halt. I'm not sure both guys are, are wrong. And also, I talked to Aljamain Sterling about it. No, not Aljamain Sterling. Who else? Oh, I asked Frankie Edgar about it. I had Frankie Edgar on my show, on my radio show, and I asked him about it. He was like, you know, I think it's kind of whatever works for you. And if you look at um, um, Edgar, he does both. Um, he brought in Michael Chandler for his camp. Remember we talked about that? Seems to have paid some dividends, if you ask me. You know, hard to say. Not a ton of evidence, you know. But I bet you if he could go back and tell you about some of the things he was able to do and learn from training Michael Chandler, it would it would benefit him or you, that it benefited him in the fight. So, you know, uh, it's not because Weidman failed um, that the the paradigm in which he is arguing for necessarily failed. It certainly shows it's not, you know, foolproof. But I guess the point is, is this. What if Rockhold just starts to degenerate from injuries and having his body beat down in a couple of years? Then who would be right? Weidman would be right. You know, if he has, if 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 Rockhold has an unnecessarily, or excuse me, if Rockhold has an exaggerated decline or an early decline because of physical issues related to training, um, then Weidman is ultimately proven correct in that in that regard. However, um, if Weidman is unable to regain his title and his, tra- and you could somehow argue that his training was historically limited in some way, a little bit tougher of an argument to make, but you could do it then you might side with Rockhold in that debate. So I don't know that either guy is necessarily wrong. And again, Edgar's argument was whatever works best for you. I guess for me, though, when Rockhold says, you know, you can only get so good doing, you know, being the big fish in the small pond, maybe that's true, you know. But Chris Weidman was the UFC middleweight champion. That's pretty damn good. (laughs) Now, he couldn't hold it against Luke Rockhold. And maybe Rockhold's got a point about that really fine, sharpened edge you can only get against the very best. But what if he, like, fizzles out early because he just, I mean, it's just too much on him. 
You know, he's not at a point now where his body has to answer for those questions, but maybe they will, or maybe they won't. Maybe they won't wind up saying that Rockwell was right the whole time. I'm just saying one guy achieving champion, maybe just losing to a better guy. I don't know that that throws Chris arguments, uh, argument in the garbage. And then you have Tony Ferguson out there doing, he did to Edson Barboza. Like there's lots of evidence to suggest that for some guys, and I don't know if it's going to work for everybody, but for some guys, being a big fish in a small pond actually has a lot of benefits. How about McGregor? Look at McGregor. Yeah, they're bringing in people to train with. Yes, he's getting some good looks. Um, but in terms of striking, who's on his par at, at SBG? It's just McGregor. You know, in terms of that level, he's the guy. There's not anyone close. I mean, Gunnar Nelson's good on his feet, but he's not. He's not that. So... Um, I think the de- I think it's an interesting debate, but I think it's a very much unsettled debate. Uh, another question about fence grabbing. Right, love. Uh, I think we talked about. Let me see if there's anything new here. Connor at lightweight. I previously thought Connor would get ragdolled by the likes of RDA, and that's still very possible, or abused by Cerrone and Pettis in the feet. I think I may have been underselling Connor striking a movement. His performance has changed your opinion of the notorious one one fifty five. Definitely, got to reiterate that. I don't know how you look at what happened on one at, uh, on Saturday night and say, "Well, that was just a bad Aldo." Connor got in his head. Nah, maybe. Connor's good. Connor's really good. And I was a tough sell on him, man. I, for some reason, I just had a um, perpetual skepticism. Not that he was good, but you know how good I don't know. Well, he's good. He is. He is. He is very, very good. Um, and I, you know, I don't. I don't. I don't intend to take that away from him anytime soon. Um. Look, I want to challenge the recent assertion UFC has been unwise in rushing products to market like Fight Pass and Reebok. I'm in the software industry, and similar rushing is common and encouraged. Well, that's because the software industry has an entirely different set of expectations, but okay. Um, It is related to user-customer experience. The Agile uh, methodology promotes releasing software early and often in order to get customer feedback as soon as possible, which allows developers to be nimble, quickly adapt, and make changes in order to meet customer demand. Releasing early and often allows companies to get some of the most valuable insight into a business could ask for. This is a different kind of software you're talking about. You want to talk about software, I can make a totally a different example. You can talk about Apple Maps and what a complete disaster that was because the team had failed prior to launch in ironing out the massive amounts of bug, and it did lasting damage to Apple Maps. No one uses them anymore, and Apple was eventually forced to relent and allow Google Maps um, on there. And if you're an Apple user, I don't know a single Apple user that uses Apple users on their iPhone over Google Maps. So your point there, it's certain industries and certain kinds of you know beta rollouts on software, that might be true. But in technology, generally, that's absolutely not true. And certainly not true in the fight business. The fact that Reebok rushed everything, that the designs seemed uninspired, that there were so many errors, flexibility, and Anderson Aldo and everything else, this has done dramatic damage to their brand and their brand uh, um, um, within the MMA space. Um, and then you look at Fight Pass. Certainly Fight Pass has become dramatically better, and I'm sure they did benefit from some of that feedback. But that was a product they were trying to sell. They wanted to get out the door. There wasn't a need to rush it as fast as they did. 
other than to not look derivative of the WWE network, which, you know, the two conversations about them no longer even exist. They have since reinvested in Fight Pass. They've made it a lot better, but it's still got a lot of search functionality problems, um, which folks note to what extent that hindered sales is a very credible argument to me. So this idea that like rushing things out and then having them all effed up and then having fans outraged about it, pushing back on you is somehow the better way to go about it versus having, you know, unexpected, you know, you have to account for a certain amount of um, a revision that's going to have to happen. Okay. But rather than blowing the doors off of people, cause you took your time. I have, a, I have a very hard time buying into that. Luke, which fighters have you noticed seem to look physically different lately? Is it new training techniques? So again, you're asking me who looks different. I'm going to answer that based on, I have no idea why they look different because without specific information, I can't say anything. I don't have any strong arguments one way or the other. I thought um, Eric Silva has not looked the same. If you're asking me if anybody looked different at UFC 194, people are saying Jose Aldo looked different, for which I find there's very little evidence. How about Jacare? Did y'all not think Jacare just didn't look quite as um, just just a tick off what he had looked previously? I know he's getting older. And maybe he's changing his training. Maybe he's got some different relationship between weights and and cardio or whatever. I don't know. Maybe he's doing movement drills. I don't know. Um, but I didn't think he looked the same. Romero, I thought, looked the same, uh, mostly anyway. Um, yeah, everyone else looked the same. Nate Diaz. Have you seen the pictures of Nate Diaz floating around? Your boy Nate Diaz looks like he's been in the weight room, son. Swole. <laughs> Swole. Dos Anjos uh, looks a little bit different. Uh, in a, you know, in a positive way, it looks a lot more swole. Um, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. And I know I predominantly have mentioned Brazilian fighters. I don't mean to single them out. It's just what comes to my mind. Um, so we need to be very careful about the reasons for that are. But I just thought it was a crazy. It's like, why are we talking about Aldo? Did y'all not see Jacare? I thought I could have. I mean, I could be wrong. I could be totally wrong. I thought Jacare looked a little bit less than himself. And someone else is asking about that. I'm just not going to. Someone else says, not only did I not see a difference in between the, you know, before and, before and after Aldo picks, even if there was a difference, it could simply be due to having a change in how the fighter loses weight before the fight without being able to use IVs. Weidman did look different. Oh, there he goes. Another guy who looked different. Weidman looked different. Uh, and said he was doing things different leading up to the fight and was slimmer before cutting water weight than he used to be. So, yes, there's lots and lots of different reasons for why guys can look the way they did. Um, someone's asking about the web traffic 194. Uh, Cody Garbrandt biting off more than he can chew. He's booked against John Lineker. Yeah, you know what? Cody Garbrandt can thump, but um, he has had some defensive responsibility issues with head movement. And I don't know how much I like that fight for him. But he can win that fight. Don't think don't think he can't. Don't think Lineker just, you know, who's also open and also, you know. It's not like Lineker's never taken his fair share of bombs, too, my friends. He's taken his bombs as well. But, yes, we all know of the two who can thump more, Lineker, of the two um, who you know who's more susceptible to damage. Uh, not that I think Garbin has a bad chin by any stretch, but uh, he's definitely been you know rocked a few times. So it says Joe Lazan. Luke, please talk about this for a minute. I've always been a huge fan of his, or because of his incredible heart. Why would, that, why would do people talk about 
you know, don't rob Joe Lazon, man. Joe Lazon's good technically. Is he the best ever in lightweight? No. Okay, fine. But Joe Lazon is a is a technician. He he puts that tech use that technique to use with his go get him attitude. But understand what it is. But someone says he looked bad on Friday, really bad. It wasn't just that he looked like a sparring partner for Evan Dunham. It was that Tony Ferguson and Edson Barboza fought right after him, providing a stark contrast in pace and ability. It hurts me to even ask this because I love him so much, but do you think it's time for J-Law to start thinking about what he's going to be doing after the UFC? Well, you know what? For a guy that smart, I'm betting he already has. Remember, he just he has his own martial arts facility now. Um, he's a you know he's made a lot of extra money and bonuses. You know Chris Lytle and Joe Lozano are very similar in that way, where they they made for their era more than they would have given their abilities because they were such bonus collectors. And in the case of Chris Lytle, he told me you know he's able to create a college fund for his kids and you know bought some assets. I think he'd done some real estate purchasing, um, you know to 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 invest his money. And it looks like it looks like uh, Lozano is on a similar path. What he'll do after, I don't know. But yeah, look, I mean, look, guys, the style that Lausanne presented, I don't know if he would do it any other way because it brought him a lot of attention and, and fan goodwill. But it's hard on the body, the way he fights. Um, he's had some tough losses. He's had some wars. You know, these things add up. And the zip and the pop, I think, is not quite what it once was. Um, so, you know, um, how much? let me see how old he is. I think he's... 31. Yeah, he's getting a little bit older now, you know. That's 31's not old, but that's an old 31 for Joel Lazon, you know. All right, let's go to the Twitter machine here and see what we can get. Uh, why is Randa versus a newcomer first on the Fox card while the prelims have several better fights on paper? Probably because there's a certain way they like those two matching up to open the Fox show. The opening on the Fox show is almost always about not who's the best fighter on the card, but about what matchup can we put to have the most amount of action. Will Connor wear his green shorts from now on? I certainly hope so. I thought that was a uh, deft move by Reebok. I loved it. If you're going to go all in on nationalism where everyone's country is color-coded on their fight kit and their uniform, then why don't we do it smartly, piece by piece, for guys in main events? Someone like Conor McGregor getting green and black shorts, brilliant. Should have been green and orange, but whatever. Okay, brilliant. Um, yeah, I don't understand. I don't understand. If you really want to make nationalism such a key push, do it in smart ways. You know, and I bet they consulted with him too about that. You know, that's the way. That's the way to do it. You got to have a delicate touch, and that takes to the point about the previous question. Time. All right. Someone says, I use Apple Maps. Well, your ass must get lost on the regular then. Who's the better overall athlete? Um, Conor McGregor or Ronda Rousey? Pound for pound, maybe Ronda. I'm sure that's going to you know enrage the fans of McGregor. We think he's next for Chad Mendez. Boy, I don't know, man. He's in a tough spot. He's clearly below uh, McGregor, Aldo, and now Edgar. Tough, tough spot, man. I really don't know what he's going to do. True or false, Weidman wins the middleweight belt again. I don't know. 
I can't answer that. Aldo wins featherweight belt again. He might. I think it's a little more likely. Rockhold will fight Belfort next instead of Romero. I doubt it. If, I'll say false, but if somehow Vitor wins against Silva, look out. 194 does a million buys. Oh, yeah, for sure. Did you watch EBI? If so, what did you think of it? I did not. Who would win, Habib versus Ben Askren? Well, Ben's a lot bigger, um, but I bet Habib could hold his own. Will it be easier for fighters to hang with Rousey, Weidman, and Aldo after weaknesses revealed? It's a good question because you've seen how democratized techniques can become when someone does it. Anderson Silva does a front kick to the face, and all of a sudden you're seeing a lot of front kicks both to the belly and to the face in ways you hadn't before. And when someone can give you a blueprint to how to beat someone else, when Fedor beat Noguera the first time and you really saw that, you have to ask yourself, how much of this can I reproduce at scale? So, so in other words, Fedor can do that to Noguera, and I see what Fedor is doing to Noguera. Could I do that to Noguera? And it turns out that wasn't that replicable. So, the, so what you have to be careful with here is, in the case of Rousey, looking at what Holm did and saying, oh, you just have to do what Holm did. Well, what Holm did was a masterful performance. It's not just really the techniques that she used, but that she was able to do all of those techniques all the time like that. Okay? Um, but I do think that for the more capable in the division, you might see them gain a little ground. For Widebit, I don't know, because I think outside of Rockhold, I mean, maybe Jacare has an advantage on the ground, but I don't know that Jacare could physically bully him that way. Romero doesn't have the technical savvy. But Romero's not going to go down as much, so I don't know. I, it's it's a little it's a little dicier in that sense. But um, and Aldo again, it's a question of to what extent did he get beat? To what extent was it a tactical error? To what extent was a tactical error by a function of mind games? Um, and even if it was, is anyone besides does does Chad Mendes really have the ability to give Aldo a hard time? Does does Edgar maybe maybe? But I think for Rousey, there's a little bit there to look at and say, okay. I have to walk the path that Holly walked, but maybe I can do that a little bit. You know, maybe I can constantly get my forearm on the clavicle and break the left-handed grip. Maybe I can, um, you know, stay on the circle and and, and uh, circle and and back up when I need to, and you know, stuff Ronda's hips and everything else. Maybe maybe I can do that. Will more champions demand their own exclusive shorts due to Connor? I don't know that more will, but I certainly hope that more do. True or false, the biggest gap in quality between divisions in the UFC is between featherweight and lightweight. False. Again, another question. With Wyman out of the way, can you see a return of the spider? No. Could be wrong, but no. Why was Maya Nelson so captivating, but I found myself hating Hall and Labov? Exposures, differences, higher stakes. Higher stakes, certainly. Um, Gunnar Nelson cheered on by the audience. Uh, Nelson versus Maya, consequential. When it was announced, it was elite grappler versus elite grappler. There was something there. Hall and Lebov were both both replacements. Um, I'm not sure that you know people may have watched the Ultimate Fighter, but you know the guys on the show are not as popular as Nelson and Maya. Um, Lebov is not a grappler per se. Ryan is, so it was a bit of a it wasn't grappler versus grappler in that way. Um, and again, it didn't have the same consequence, right? I mean, when the ultimate fighter is nothing to sneeze at necessarily, but it's not the same as, you know, how far away is Demi and Maya now from a title shot at 170. These are two different portions. One, one, one set of 
guys are fighting to stay in the UFC, uh, uh, and another one is fighting to you know stay at the top of the UFC. So. So it says people complaining the Connor fight was too short. I feel a 13 second KO is a big statement, especially against undefeated Aldo. Um, if you want to make the claim that 13 seconds is just enough, is just not enough to really say a whole hell of a lot when the uh, you know when it's all said and done, I, I wouldn't argue too much. Um, so it says I don't get lost on Apple Maps. I literally don't believe you. You can just type whatever you want. I don't believe you because every time I've used Apple Maps, including recently, it's been a mess. It's been a mess. So you can just write this on Twitter, but I, I fundamentally don't believe you. Um, back to Aldo and the 13-second knockout. But the 13-second knockout, again, to me, is just not accidental. Um, how far it would have gone, I would have loved to have seen because it would have given us a much better sense of things. You know, uh, you can't really argue how much more would we have learned about Holly and Ronda if it had gone a little bit longer. I mean, it went about as long as it needed to to get a pretty clean, clean understanding. The 13 second doesn't give you the same kind of insight, I don't feel like, but I'm, a, I'm with you. I feel like I watched that and I, I just got a real sense of finality about the debate, you know, uh, and maybe you didn't. Maybe you think it's very flukish. I don't know how flukish I think that is. Again, someone talking about the refusal of Chris Weidman to make any escape from Mount. I think there are reasons for that. Uh, Mighty Mouse now has more title defenses than every other champion combined, yet interest in him could not be lower. Doesn't have an opponent, and again, it's that Ned Flanders factor where you know Ned Flanders is a bad dude, but uh, and an awesome guy, but you know this isn't the awesome guy fighting championship. Let's go back to these questions. Do you still feel Aldo McGregor was easier to predict than we think? First of all, no one predicted it would end in 13 seconds, even if you had a first-round knockout. Um, no, no one called 13. And again, you're fundamentally misunderstanding the argument here. The argument is not that if it ends quickly, it justified the the dismissiveness. It was uh, it, 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 The argument is... It, if you're properly, without knowing the future, if you're properly weighing variables that have historically contributed to wins and losses, then you have to take seriously Aldo's chances. Conversely, if you're taking seriously the variables in a mixed martial arts contest that contributes to wins and losses, you have to take Aldo seriously, even or uh, McGregor seriously. Uh, even if you're doing, you know, the bit where you're like, you know, but in the end, I think Connor's just going to be too much for him. That's fine. Like, there, I don't know. I mean, who could argue against that? But but saying, ah. It's just going to be a first-round knockout because he's got big power. I mean, yes, in the end, that's true. But I'm telling you, over time, and you're going to, you know, you can say what you want. Over time, if you really want to think about how these contests work, you have to take seriously people's weaknesses and all of their strengths, and you try to make the best composite picture. And you, and it, it's, I would be very cautious in MMA over time about dismissing someone's qualities, even if they lose badly early. Um. I, I do think McGregor is better. I do think McGregor would beat him in a rematch. I would clearly favor him to win in a rematch. I think the early odds have that as the case. But when you're picking fights, you need to be very respectful of what someone has done and the things that ha and how they have done. What are the things that contribute to success at the elite level? Does this person have it? Understanding what was special about Aldo statistically, his defense, his defense. That was he had record ability to evade punishment you're supposed to just ignore that 
I'm sorry. I, I, not knowing the future, I would not say it's an easy fight to predict. Now that we have a sense of how they physically align, you can make it a little bit. You can hedge it a little bit and say, you know, maybe Aldo will go longer. Maybe he'll make it out of the round or something. Um, but in the end, the power differential, the reach differential, the movement differential is too much. But we're talking about a guy who had some of the best defense in the game, and you're telling me, eh, I don't really care about that. Well, uh, sorry, I do. And I think over time, respecting that for all the different fighters in all the different weight classes is going to be a better way to go about things. And Frank Fertitta slamming the belt. I don't think he slammed the belt. I really don't, guys. Not in frustrated anger anyway. Uh, Edmund's in-fight transcript word for word. Did you read it? I did. What do you make of it? Yeah, so it looked like what the it, – it's hard to tell, but it looked like what – the game plan was was to pressure Holly backwards, do a lot of fainting, which she didn't do, but get her tired. And then once they get her tired, get a hold of her. It was just that the application of the pressure was not good, and the fainting was not good. Um, and I would have been a little bit more patient about it too. I would have really turned it on a little bit later. But but that was the that was the that was it seemed like that was the game plan. Pressure. Enough to get her tired, faint, get inside, get her against the cage, get her down, and then do your do your magic. It's not a terrible game plan, believe it or not, I don't think. But if you don't have the ability to execute that, it's a terrible game plan. So that's kind of what we saw there, right? She just didn't have the ability to do the fainting necessary to get her tired, to get her thinking, to get her respecting the fainting, and ultimately get her back against the fence. So that was that was problematic for me. Uh, interesting question here by someone whose name I'm going to ban after this um, chat. Luke, do you think Edmund Tarverdian and John Kavanaugh are given too much credit for their work with Ronda and Connor? Both coaches have only one successful fighter and train other mid-tier fighters like Brown and Gunnar Nelson. Seems to me that Rousey and McGregor would be just as successful, if not more so, if they're with a more established camp like AKA and Jackson's and Winkle John. So if you think about this, why is Nick Saban? Now, if you're from Europe, you may not know that name. Nick Saban um, is a famous football coach. He coached briefly in the NFL, but is a coach of the uh, University of Alabama football team. They are perennial top four team. They have won multiple national titles under Nick Saban. And guys from the University of Alabama, big amounts of them, uh, end up going to the NFL. Okay, they produce a, It's an NFL powerhouse, basically. Uh, one of the top programs in the country. He makes Nick Saban makes millions and millions a year. What is one of the, look, why is Nick Saban such a good coach? Is it because he has a tactical understanding of the game that's much better than everyone? I think you could make that's part of the argument. Um, does Alabama give him the money and the resources to give the kind of training and preparation that teams at that, that level of the game need to win titles? Sure. Uh, a big part of coaching, in, for, in, for example, in American football, is recruiting. So they're going to do a lot of local recruiting. In Alabama, football is big at the high school level, so you're going to have a little bit better of a talent pool um, than if you were, say, in Vermont to get the kind of players you need for a Division One level program in, in American colleges, right, the highest level. And, and, again, top of the top of the SEC, boy, that's no joke, okay? Um, or maybe maybe LSU won. But you get the – I haven't kept up with college football all the season. But, you know, LSU, University of Alabama, Nick Saban – but what they often do is they often recruit from the local area 
and outside the local area. They're not going to go all the way to California, maybe, although that happens on occasion. But in the in the South, like there was guys that my, I went to high school. I went to the winningest high school football. My high school had the winningest high school football program in the country. Um, you can look it up, Valdosta High School. They had won, I think, six national titles. And uh, I remember a guy my my sophomore year went to Alabama. It was a big to do because to get recruited by a Division One program was a big deal. The answer to your question about that is when these big camps are very good at is yes. Greg Jackson's an amazing trainer. And yes, Mike Winklejohn will get your striking to another level. And yes, Javier Mendez knows how to help you manage your career. And yes, Ricardo Laborio, or Ricardo Laborio will get your jiu-jitsu at another level. This is all true. But what they're really good at is recruiting a wide array of fighters to come there, either by directly recruiting them or indirectly recruiting them in the case of, man, I really want to go see if I can train at Jackson's. People apply to train there. There's a natural recruitment going on. So when you talk about John Cavanaugh and uh, Edmund Tarverdian, these guys are fairly new on the scene. Um, they're fairly isolated in certain ways, you know, um, especially in the case of Kavanaugh. Uh, Tarverdian, to a lesser degree, I mean, he's like, you know, emotionally walled off from everyone. But in the case of Kavanaugh, you know, you have to go to Ireland if you're an American and you want to go train, if they'll even take you. Meanwhile, he has to recruit from the local area. And Dublin has... If Dublin can produce Conor McGregor, they can produce many good fighters. But he's also really special and unique in that way, too. So one of the keys to coaching, when you're evaluating coaching, you have to take into account to what extent are they part of a recruiting mechanism, either directly or indirectly. How much are they able to draw outside of the local area to get really good fighters to come there, and then they can take guys who are already pretty good and then get them even better. But if you're just, if you live in Washington, D.C., where I live, and you just, you know, if you want to, I'm going to get the best boxers in the city. You're going to get some guys with some decent knuckle game, but you'd have a lot better of a gym if you recruited from Georgia all the way to New York and you brought in the best fighters you could and you had housing for them. You would have a much better stable of fighters because you're just casting a wider net and good coaches recruit, or at least, you know, team sports, for example. That is one way Nick Saban is measured in his performance. How well did you recruit? Each recruit for folks in Europe who are watching this chat, you don't know the the recruits are graded. Recruiting classes are graded. The recruits are graded for their position nationally in high school, and then as each university puts a class together, those classes are are graded. These are people who do this for a living. So just understand that recruitment a big, big, big part of being a successful coach. Okay. With that said, thank you so much for watching. Let me say, I got a new microphone if y'all can see it. Um, 194 was tremendous. Um, the whole experience was tremendous. I thought it was a total home run by UFC. So credit to all of them. Uh, Conor McGregor, if you're a doubter like I have been, you certainly must now no longer be. Um, and again, everyone just wants to pay attention to all the FF games that he plays when really what's going on is that he is just better i think than a lot of these guys ff games notwithstanding all right so that's that get at me on email luke.thomas at espionation.com lots of coverage coming your way for ufc and fox 17 this coming weekend so that's there thanks to everyone who watched the monday morning analyst i think it's the second biggest one of all time um i hope you guys like the new format i'll try to keep it going and um until next time you know what to do stay frosty oh give it a like
Stay frosty.